Welcome to episode 141 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we're hoping our journey doesn't get as derailed as the road trip the titular family takes in Netflix's The Mitchells vs. the Machines, which we'll be reviewing on this episode. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing well. I uh, It'd been a while, actually, since I'd watched anything on Netflix, to be really honest, and so having to dust off the the cobwebs of the Netflix app and pressing play. It was a reminder that Netflix does have a lot of content as I, I guess, ceremonially scrolled through the thousands of rows that they give you on Netflix that just overwhelm me and often lead me to just closing the app. But I found Mitchell vs. the Machines finally and turned it on and, you know, I had a good time. Scott, you're really telling on yourself there that you haven't been watching every single one of Netflix's one movie per week. You know, this was their, their big yes. thing going into the year that they were going to come out with a movie every single week. Mm-hmm. Uh, cinematic classics, I'm sure all of them. And um, like can I you said, name really? Can you name three movies they released this year so far? Um, I'll get back to you on that. While, while we're uh, while I'm thinking about that, uh, allow me to introduce our guest for today's episode. Um, you know him, of course, from Some Like It, Scott. I mean, that's that's. I was going to say great, you know great. me primarily from uh, the classic. Primarily from Some Like It, Scott. Scum yeah. Like It, Scott. Our listeners uh, yeah. probably only knows you from Some <laughs> Like It, Scott. Best of 2020 and uh, and the Sundance recap episode. Um, you may also know him from Movie Trivia Schmodown, from other podcast appearances. Um, but he is here with us uh, today again to to talk about this movie. Uh, Paul Oyama. Paul, how are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's uh, yeah, it's it's funny. We we had talked about me potentially coming back on at some point, and then I watched this movie, and I immediately um, messaged Scott, and I was like, well. I think I got to be on this episode, so uh, here we are. Yeah, no, we're we're everyone's really spoiling their thoughts. I think on the movie here early on. No, I'm kidding, but uh, yeah, well, Paul's no, about to um, rant about it. That's why he had to be on. He doesn't. He can't always <laughs> talk positive about the films. That he that's has. true. It could it could have been it could have been the other way around. Um, but yeah, no, we're we're happy to have uh, Paul here and uh, look forward to to hearing his thoughts. Um, on the movie, uh, and as mentioned, that movie today is Netflix's The Mitchells vs. Machines, directed by Michael Rianda and produced by the dynamic duo of Phil Lord and Chris Miller. The Mitchells vs. The Machines is a stylish animated adventure that tells the story of the titular family who decide to make it a road trip when daughter Katie, voiced by Abby Jacobson, leaves home for the film school of her dreams in California. Rounding out the dysfunctional quartet are goofy dad Rick, voiced by Danny McBride, Protective mom, Linda, voiced by Maya Rudolph, and dinosaur-obsessed son, Aaron, voiced by the director himself, Michael Rianda. Oh, and there's also a dog, because of course there is. Uh, hey, Rick hey, and Linda you host- cannot leave out the most important character. <laughs> that's that's the pal Max robot, voiced by Blake Griffin. That, that is the most important member of this voice cast. We're getting there, don't worry. Uh, Rick and Linda hope the road trip will be therapeutic for the family, but their plans soon go awry when an army of robots produced by tech giant Pal goes rogue and begins capturing humans with the intent of shooting them into space. 
As the only survivors of the robot attack, the Mitchells soon realize they must overcome and even celebrate their differences if they're to defeat the machines and save the universe. Let's start with our guest, Paul. Does the Mitchells versus the machines have the humor, heart, and style of Lord and Miller's other animated hits, or does this road trip run out of gas before it reaches its destination? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I think the reason I want to talk about it is because this movie really struck me on an emotional level that I was not expecting or prepared for going in, I think. Um, to be honest, it, this wasn't a movie I even knew was coming out until I think the week it came out. And then I saw critics a couple days early um, talking about it. And all the reviews are really positive. And I wasn't necessarily shocked. Um, but I also was going in a bit trepidatious. I think sometimes that the American animated film landscape tends to be really hit or miss for me, I think. that Oftentimes they don't connect emotionally the way that I want to. Um, but I went in with this this movie, and of course this movie is so squarely in so many of my interests. It's about a film school kid who's like trying to you know, show their parents how important their art is to them. And I think in that sense, um, it really did hit home ultimately for me. And there's, there's a bunch of other reasons and a bunch of other stuff happens in the movie, of course. But um, this was, yeah, this is some of the most emotional I've gotten at a new movie in a long time. And I think that the, the emotional connective threads between uh, between Katie and her father, I think, are, are really the heart and soul of the movie and what make the movie work. I mean, all the family dynamics, really, but... Um, that was generally, yeah, my big takeaway from from the movie. Scott Shelton, do you have, do you have any? Uh, how do you feel about this whole thing? Well, I feel like I should have really gone first because I have like a tight five lined up to make a lot of jokes about like Elon Musk and all sorts of other like humor mm. that I could add. But I can't really follow up the, the emotional note with that. So I'll just <laughs> say that I um I I did really enjoy this. I'm a little bit uh, butt hurt that Scott didn't mention the most. I think actually the most important part about this is that it's made by Sony Pictures Animation. So you were alluding just now to the fact that. Um, you know, it's American animation and that can be hit, hit or miss for you. But like Sony Pictures Animation, yes, they do more stuff than Into the Spider-Verse. But the fact that they had such a huge hit a few years ago uh, really, I think, was really at the forefront of my mind when I was going into this because, you know, yes, Angry Birds 2 has come out since Into the Spider-Verse. And I'm sure some other stuff that's even more targeted towards children has come out uh, since, since then. But this really feels like their first foray back into something that, at least on an emotional level, can can connect, if not, he's even targeting more, more so adults who can uh, more, I guess, relate to the experiences that these different family members might be having, as opposed to something that might just be entertaining to watch for a small child. And so I, I think that was a big part of what I came into this movie with, knowing that it was from them, even though it was being distributed by Netflix. And I really can't help but think that uh, the animation style, or one of the things that I super appreciate about Sony Pictures is that it always seems like they're bringing something different and flavorful to their animation yeah. style, even if it's not always something that works as well as Into the Spider-Verse worked, which I thought was pretty much flawless animation in terms of being original and really speaking to the story that it was telling. I think at times you get that in this as well with sort of the almost comic booky like nature of of the story being told and the style of animation. And I think that it lends itself well to plotting at different times when you have this sort of unrealistic, you know, robots taking over the universe type action that you might see in a, in a kid's comic strip. Um, but then at other times, I think that it, it doesn't quite work as perfectly as something like Into the Spider-Verse did, but I don't want to spend the entire time comparing it to that. On the emotional level, I think it's something that I was surprised by as well. I mean, you mentioned kind of being not skeptical, but trepidatious going into the film. And I think I felt something similar. And I'm not sure that I got to the to the same emotional level that that you did. But I, I think it was something that I still could sit there and I was engaged with most of the time and that I appreciated at the end. And I think what I said in my letterbox review is that, you know, th this isn't a film that is going to be on my top 10 list by the end of the year. But it's one 
that I'm going to think about, I think, more than others. And I think that that definitely has merit in its own right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that for me, when it comes to animated movies, um, I'm not someone who, outside of the big studios, um, is, you know, someone who who actively seeks out, you know, a DreamWorks or Ardman, you know, I, again, outside of Pixar. Illumination, and, Blue Sky. Yeah, yeah those are right. the stuff you go to. Um, you know, outside of Pixar, G- Ghibli, like these are the those are the movies that connect with me because I feel like those are the movies that are least targeted at kids. Uh, in, in so, to some extent, yes, of course they are targeted at kids, but they're also trying to Totoro uh, is about as kid targeted as you're going to get <laughs> on an emotion. But they're also trying to appeal on an emotional level to um, adults as well. Whereas I feel you know, like DreamWorks, and again, some of those. Uh, deep cut animation studios are, you know, they make a particular kind of movie for a particular um, younger type of audience. Um, and I'll stand up for the company for, that I work for and say, I think that's wrong about DreamWorks, but I didn't. Right. <laughs> it, well, it, well, you're obligated to say that. So well, I don't uh, think how to train your dragon is, is aimed solely. I'm, at I'm just, I'm kidding, Scott. I'm kidding. Um, but you know, it won't surprise our listeners to know that the stuff that is targeted at kids more is not stuff that usually strikes a chord with me or that I even get that interested in. And just seeing the poster for this, I was like, this looks like, you know, this looks like a DreamWorks animated movie or something like that. When you look at the poster, that's what you think. Um, and so the poster didn't immediately grab me. And, but then I started seeing the reviews, like Paul said, um, and, you know, and, and I saw, of course, Lord Miller's name attached and, you know, their names they've created, you know, my two of my favorite animated movies of all time with Lego movie and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Of course, you know, the Spider Spider-Verse that had a little bit less to do with Bill Lord was a writer, um, and then they just produced it. But um, you know, the Lego movie was all their brainchild. And of course, you could see, you know, to Scott's point, you could see the the hallmarks of those movies written all over Mitchell's verse of the machines with in particular, the animation style. I think it's really well suited to this movie in particular, though, because like of the major theme about creativity and celebrating the, you know, weirdness of, uh, you know, Katie's films in, in this particular um, example. And just the, the weird, like the weird quirks of every single member of the family. It's, you know, they really come to celebrate those over the course of the movie. So it makes sense to me, right, that there's this animation style that is also sort of weird and wonky and quirky in a lot of ways, um, because I feel like the movie is all about celebrating that. And um, so it's a kind of little metal meta thing that is going on that, you know, they even tie in nicely sort of at the uh, closing credits with uh, the pictures of everyone's families and stuff, which I really liked. I thought that was a really nice touch there at the end of the movie, but, um, but yeah, no. So I, I, I thought the animation style really suited the movie. Well, I do think it's, uh, you know, humor works pretty well. Um, there probably is a little bit more stuff targeted at kids than maybe in, you know, the Lego movie, for example, like Lego movie. When I go back and watch it now, I feel like 30% of that movie was targeted at kids and the rest of it was really, interesting. Um, yeah, I don't think so. Like, I agree, I, actually. Okay. Well, I'm just going to say like the fast paced action and like the, you know, that stuff and the characters and stuff. Yeah, I could see kids getting something like that. But like most of the humor and like the the thematic elements, I feel like so much of that is for maybe like more for people our age who are like nostalgic for Legos and, and that type of thing. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just don't see kids connecting with it in the same way. But I also, you know, I can't like I was an adult when it came out. So like I I can't really put myself in the, their shoes completely. But 
Yeah, because that's interesting. Because I think the reason, and I honestly am not really a big fan of the Lego movie. And the big reason for me is mm-hmm. I feel like it actually is um, aimed at kids just because of the pace of the humor, I think, is kind of one of those things where I think kids are more into the manic, or at least studios seem to think kids are into this manic, crazy, all over the place kind of humor. And a lot of it's visual, which I think is also a, an important thing for kids because kids are just, no matter how much you dumb down the jokes, kids are not going to understand a lot of the jokes. A lot of it's just timing and visuals. And I think that's what the Lego movie is all about. Um, and I think this is a, a bit different in terms of where its audience is aimed at than that. Um, I, one thing I did want to talk about at some point, and I think we can get into it now, is I think this idea that Lord and Miller are seen as one of the sort of um, the auteurs of like Sony Pictures Animation Studios. And I think that's interesting because they are producing and overseeing a lot of these movies, but they're not really directing them necessarily anymore. You know what I mean? Like they directed the first Lego movie. Um, and But like all, a lot of the other movies are not, necessarily you know i'm sure they were actively involved but i think it's funny that they've come to be seen as the people who are the authors of these projects and i wonder if that's just because it's easy to latch on to a familiar name that we already like um and i I do think that like michael rianda deserves a lot of credit for this i mean it's his story it's clearly like a very personal story for him and i just wonder what you guys think of that because i think in terms of sony pictures animation you have Lord and Miller and then uh, Gendy Tartakovsky, who, who did all the Hotel Transylvania movies, is kind of the other auteur of the studio. And those are the two sort of pillars that the studio sits behind. But what do you guys think as far as like, I don't know, Lord and Miller has come to be seen as like, this is a Lord and Miller movie, but it's like, they're not really directing a lot of these movies. They're not even necessarily yeah. writing all of them. Like, what, why do you yeah. think that is? I, I think it's like a thematic thing to some extent, because all three of the movies that I mentioned, right, Lego movie, Spider-Verse, this movie... They, they all have a similar thematic thing going on about, oh, we want to celebrate people for who they are. We want to celebrate creativity. We want to celebrate people's differences. I mean, again, going back to the Lego movie, like that's what the movie is ultimately all about. When you peel back that, um, you know, layer and you get the whole thing that is going on in the real world with Will Ferrell and his kids um, is a lot about, you know, hey, we're going to celebrate these weird little creatures and, you know, the uh, the floating bunk bed couch and, you know, these weird inventions and stuff that people just throw together with Legos. And then, you know, Spider-Verse, anyone can wear the mask. Again, celebrating individuality. Um, and I feel like this movie is the, is the same way. I, now, I don't know if, like, people who, you know, are seeing Lord and Miller that way are necessarily going all the way as far as I have and making that connection, and that's why they're making that connection and saying, oh, hey, you know, I recognize this as a Lord and Miller film. But they've clearly influenced um, the people, you know, like Michael Rianda, like the directors of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And I will note, if you follow Lord and Miller on social media, it, they did it during Spider-Verse and they do it now. Like, they're very quick to celebrate and highlight the achievements of, uh, you know, the the directors of those movies and say, you know, kind of in a way sort of trying to distance themselves from it and say, hey, these are the creative minds behind this thing, even though we're the names that you know. Yeah, well, it's also, you can't tell the story of Lord and Miller doing animation without starting with Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which is their right. first, I think the first movie they ever directed, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like one of the early films at Sony Pictures Animation, which is like, that is sort of how they built their bones. And I, I honestly think that movie is really charming. I really enjoy, honestly, both entries. I, they didn't direct the second movie. Um, but I think that those are also a bit part and parcel with this whole narrative, but also they don't have that creative, that creativity string in the same way. It's more sort of, I guess it is creativity from a science perspective, right? But um, those are interesting movies too, I think, when you look at them through the lens of Lord and Miller and how they've evolved so much as filmmakers and writers and, and creative voices over the over the years. And, you know, those often don't get talked about as much, right? In terms of people are like, oh, Lego movie, Spider-Verse, and now this, right? It's sort of the canon of Lord and Miller, mm-hmm. you know, 21 Jump Street and stuff as well. But um, 
it's it's interesting to me that those are that that is sort of the building block of their you know animation careers and it's like evolved so much since that point but i do think that this is closer in terms of theme and approach and style obviously just because of the source you know lack of source material it's not a comic book thing it's closer to cloudy than i think it is to the lego movie or spider-verse actually yeah um interesting thoughts uh let's uh let's spend a moment talking about the uh the voice cast in this movie um because we do have some recognizable names here i mentioned you know some of them up front danny mcbride and maya rudolph are the the mother and father here um Abby Jacobson, a little bit uh, lesser known, unless you're a fan of Broad City, which of mm -hmm. course she was one of the um, the stars of, uh, but she's our lead here. And then further down the cast list, you have, you know, some bigger names like Olivia Coleman, right, is the villain yeah. of sorts she's here. Great. She's, she's the, the old pal device that, you know, uh, is jaded um, by the fact that she's being replaced by these, uh, these new robots. Um, you know, you have, like Paul mentioned, Blake Griffin, of course, <laughs> voices the robots, John Legend, Chrissy Teigen, Eric Andre is sort of the entrepreneur who is, you know, heading up this whole big tech company. Um, Scott, I'll go to you. You know, who jumped out to you, first of all, from, from this cast? Uh, you know, is it anyone I've named, anyone I haven't named? Yeah, I want to first start off, and this is part of my jokes that I was going to make at the outset, but then I kicked them down the road. But I, when I was finding this movie on Netflix, I didn't just search for it because, like I said, I was kind of scrolling through, just trying to see what new rows of tiles that they had added to the service since the last time I opened it up. <laughs> the first place that I found this film was under the inclusivity tab. And I genuinely have no idea why uh, it is. I, I mean, I guess maybe Maya Rudolph is in the cast. And so, it, uh, well, the character is clearly coded as, um, as gay, I think. That as gay, yeah. No, that, that's, is that what it is? Okay. They make a brief reference to it at the end what what is it something about her having well they asked they well, her, her like they asked if she's bringing whatever, her yeah. home for no she, i mean she asked are you bringing right, her right, home right, for yeah. Thanksgiving? um right. she has a pit she has a pride pin on her backpack throughout the entire movie and i think like when she talks about her friends she says she mentions the girl first and she's like oh we're into the same things oh and also these other people and i think like right, that's right, part right, of the reason right, as yeah. well um, which, which I appreciate, but I just thought it was yeah. weird that that was like the first place that I'm like scrolling through Netflix and the first place I find it is in the inclusivity tab. I was just like, I mean, that's awesome. But um, look, it's good that, that it's just, it just is going into the film more subtly and doesn't have to be a, a big deal and whatnot. But anyway, I'm glad I didn't hear about it three months in advance. We're seeing the first ever main character in animation. That's, you know, it's yeah. like every time yeah. Disney and does then, this thing, it's like people would have been whole, so pissed because it was just one line. It, because right. it is just yeah. sort of alluded to. Yeah. Which I think this is a nice version of that. Yeah. Um, and then Jake, yeah, you're I mean, going to go back fun. and say, no, double door is gay. So it's fine. <laughs> um, she can retcon all of that for everyone. So anyway, I think in terms of the voice cast, uh, yeah, I, to me, the, this really wasn't about, and he's, for, for me, at least my experience wasn't like any standout performances from the cast. I just think that because I mean, with the exception of Olivia Coleman and, you know, maybe Maya Rudolph, I don't really think anyone in this cast really pulled me out um, with their like very distinct voice. I mean, like I said, Olivia Coleman did that for me. And I certainly recognize voices. I mean, Eric Andre, a bunch of the names that you mentioned, John Legend, Chrissy Teigen. But I was never really yanked out by any of the central performances. And I actually appreciate that about an animated movie. Um, when someone's like doing a bit or whatever, like, I mean, I think of the Lego movie, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but like Will Ferrell is just like, so Will Ferrell, um, in the, in that role, um, oh, which, yeah. is, which is fair Liam, enough. Liam but, Neeson though. Liam sure, Neeson I mean, is yeah, him too, a hundred percent. And I know that's part of like the movie's shtick. Um, but with this, I think this movie actually really, um, gets a lot of mileage out of the fact that it's not yanking you out of the narrative and the emotional moments. Yeah. 
um, with having a more, I don't want to say subtle voice cast, because I think they all did a really good job, but voices that didn't necessarily yank you out of, out of the moment uh, for a movie that doesn't necessarily bill itself as being one that's super emotional, or trying to really plumb deep emotional depths, but ends up doing that in certain moments. Well, I think it's a creative approach, right? Because it's like, right. I think it's clear, because you could have Danny McBride doing a Danny McBride voice and it would be very easy to identify him. You know what I mean? And the right. same thing with Maya Rudolph, like some of these people could be more obviously doing versions of themselves. And I think it's nice that the movie is like more coming you know, from an approach of having them be steeped in the characters and not necessarily, because yeah. a lot of mo animated movies, it's how they're sold, right? It's like, oh, this famous person, come to hear this famous person talk in the movie. That's how like people get adults to come watch their movies. Cause it's like, oh, these big stars that I like, I'll bring my kids yeah. to this. I mean, that's why. Um, I watched Lion King for the first time. I wanted to hear Darth Vader. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's like, like you mentioned, I think it's nice that it's, it's a movie that's putting characters first and not necessarily trying to have the voice cast really stand out. Cause I was worried, honestly, when I saw, I was like, John Legend and Chrissy Teigen is this, I was like, uh, I don't yeah. think I want to hear this. And then luckily I don't think that they're too obviously them. I think if you're like, if you go into it knowing that, then you can identify them, but it's not something that you're like, Oh, it's John. I, mean, Legend I think they're, I think they're like online personas. They're just like, so, that yeah. that it was like immediately recognizable for me, so but I also, I also I also don't uh, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I I definitely am in the same boat as y'all. I think I think Danny McBride made for a really believable like dad. Like, yeah, I don't know. He just had like those like sort of clueless uh, moments, like the singing in the car, right? Um, where he just like thinks that that's going to be their thing, and it's still going to like be something oh, that they can do together. Um, and, and obviously that, you know, she's not interested in that anymore. That, that felt like a very like believable moment of like, this guy is like, no, he's not an idiot or anything, but he's just like clueless or like just maybe willfully refusing to accept that his daughter is growing up and growing out of these things that they used to do to some extent. Um, and yeah, and all, his relationship to her films and everything is also, um, something that, uh, you know, over the course of the movie, I think is definitely one of the more, uh, you know, emotional aspects. And I think Paul was hitting on that earlier. Um, the way that he comes to, to view her films, not, and it's, it's not like, Oh, I think that this is great. Like this is cinema or anything like that. In the end, it's more of like, I, cinema. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I appreciate this for what it is as the expression of an individual, who I care a lot about, my daughter. There could have been some great uh, self-parody if Martin Scorsese could have played this role. <laughs> no, this reminded Paul. Paul, did this remind you of like the movies that Grace Van Patten's character makes in uh, the Meyer a little Wood bit, stories? Yeah, yeah, a little <laughs> bit, yeah. I, I did think about that a little bit. No, it's, you you talk about you touch on that relationship, and I think that for me as a film school kid, like this hit really close to home. Uh, I, my parents are not necessarily like that, but certainly. Um, you know, family members, some, some who I recently lost and, and which is part of the reason I think it connected emotionally to me too. It really reminded me of this relationship that I had with my grandmother and my uncle and kind of my grandpa as well, where it's like, they have this fear of, of you not making it. And it's not that they necessarily don't believe in you, but the way that they present their anxieties and fears about your potential failure makes you feel like they don't believe in you. And I think that this movie hits that chord in such a specific way. And I know not a lot, not everyone's going to understand it. That's so specific, right? It's like, oh, the film school kid whose parent, you know, whose family doesn't necessarily believe in their dreams. But I think that it communicates that in a way that makes that a universal idea and feeling. And it's like, you can transpose that onto different ideas and, and potential goals and dreams that people have where you just have family members or friends or whoever who, you know, whether it's by accident or on purpose, they make you feel like they don't have faith in you to succeed in this in this thing, right? And there is just this clear disconnect between 
father and daughter. There's the one point when they're kids when she wants to show him a movie she just did, and he's talking about like, oh, look at this, um, the, this dead animal on the wall. It's dead. Like, isn't this great? And like yeah. when she when she's recording him in the store, she's she wants him to repeat one of his lines again, and he's like, come on, like eyes are nature's camera, and she talks about how this is how I experience things. Like she's trying to connect with him and be like, this is my version of that, but it's just different for me. And I think his inability to tap into that early on in the movie is what makes sort of that coup de gras moment near the end so great is because it's like, it's, it's again, like you mentioned, it's not about him falling in love with the medium of filmmaking or, or YouTube or any of that stuff. It's just him getting that this means something to his daughter and this is important and him supporting right. her because early on, you know, when he cancels the plane ticket too, that's like classic stuff that I think a lot of parents do, or it's like, Oh, I'm going to make it all better. I decided to like yeah. cancel your thing with your friends and you don't have to go to orientation week. I can't imagine if I miss like welcome week slash orientation week, I would have been so upset at college. You know what I mean? The stuff that you miss out on, but it's like that this parents failed attempt to connect to their kid. And I think that that attempt, you can feel that he's trying, but he just has no idea what he's doing. And that's, it makes it tough. But then, you know, when their relationship evolves over the course of the movie, it makes it much more meaningful. I think that he started at this place where clearly they could, yeah. they didn't even speak the same language. He, this guy didn't even know what YouTube was. I think that was the sincere yeah. version of uh, the Mitchells versus the machine is an art film and you appreciate it because you have a film degree. I mean, again, I'm, like I'm, that's. No, a, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I mean, it, certainly though, that is that that is a big yeah. reason why I think it I connected with me much more than it maybe will for other people is because it is through this lens at least of a yeah. specific creative ideal and her wanting to be a film school kid and um, it's great like to me like she was making these movies at like seven years old and I was like this is like really impressive she's doing like the special effects in the background yeah. for all this dog stuff like um, but it's just cool to see that all their all the family members have their own thing too right where it's like their brother and his dinosaur thing, which I think is hilarious, like his specific thing that it's his running joke over the whole course. When of the they pull movie. up to the dinosaur park and they're like, yeah. these are not accurate yeah, dinosaurs. They should have fur on there. Yeah, the feathers. What's going on? Yeah. So I, I think it's cool that they all have their own thing and that her specific thing, I think, you know, ties into the theme of the movie so, so nicely. Yeah, no, it definitely made me appreciate like that my family situation and stuff has always been good in this regard because I have different interests from a lot of my family members and you know like my mom for example will like i of course i do these movie trivia matches or whatever she'll always ask me about them whenever i talk to her i know she doesn't care like but she asked me about them because she knows that i you know it's something that i enjoy doing and that i care a lot about and she'll even watch them if i send them to her so um you know that's I think something that, that i think that's, you're absolutely right and I, yeah. I i think one of the interesting facets of that and i think is a big potentially a big part of your experience not that you're parents still wouldn't support you, but like, you're also, you have a law degree. Like you went to law school, you were always going to go to law school. And I think that that is one of those things where like, if, you know, in the situation that Paul's talking about, like if, if his entire plan, like growing up was that he was going to become a lawyer, then like, you know, that, that doubt uh, that he perceived, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like that, that might be different. Like your perceptions yeah. of your family members career yeah. path might be different. And, and even that, because like, I am the first person for my family to leave Tennessee to go to college. I'm the first person from my family to go to law school to have anything to do with, um, you know, law. But I was ne like, there was never any question or, or never any thing for my family trying to push me in a certain direction that they, you know, that they wanted me to go. And it was always uh, this obviously is what you want to do. It means a lot to you. So we're going to support you however we can on this journey. Yeah. I mean, I remember such a salient experience, like when I when I went to college, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. Like, I mean, I'm not going to say everyone going to college knows what they want to do uh, or thinks they do, but like, I thought that I did. And that completely changed after one semester after I got my oh, yeah. ass kicked around a little bit. And then um, 
I like it took me another year to like really feel like I knew what I wanted to major in. And I just remember like the heart sinking moment where like I tell my mom what I'm going to oh, major yeah. in and like, all right, well, what are you going to do with that? And I'm like, I don't have a clue. Yeah, I just decided what I was going to major in. I oh, mean, it all, it all worked out in the so end. It's so painful but, oh, yeah, and, it and relatable. It's, I mean, there, there's a moment in the movie where it's just literally a line that is word for word something that was told to me. It's like, are you sure you can make a career out of this? Like that, totally. like specifically, I've had that I like conversation had tingles sort of, and, and specifically, but like for me, especially because it's literally about the thing it's about in the movie <laughs> where it's like, yeah. this is exactly like my experience in, in this sense. Cause it's like this kind of haunting memory of, of that whole thing. But I think again, like it is so clearly felt. And I think that the way it communicates those feelings and ideas and, Again, it's not like either of them is really malicious about any of this stuff, right? Even when she says the kind of horrible stuff about her dad that gets replayed in the video footage mm -hmm. later, yeah. like it's not her coming from a place of like anger or hatred, it's frustration, right? And it's this constant thing of when they're a kid, there's the one part where she's trying to show, or not even, it's the night before she leaves, right? She's trying to show her parents her movie and her dad gets like halfway and he starts questioning and she's like, can you just finish watching the video? Like he's not even giving it a chance. And I think that's her frustration built up and built up and built up which is why again like you feel that dam about to break and then this road trip forces them back together and that tension's interesting right because it's like you feel like they, as, as they go on they started really close tight-knit when they were younger right and you feel the family kind of growing apart 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 and then when she's about to go leave for college she's about to like finally be free and then they're forced back together into this car right into this confined space where there's no escape like you have to be with your family the whole time even if you're on your phone you're still around your your family they're trying to get her to participate in stuff and i think that that forced you know collaboration and, and the, the confinement is what challenges their relationship and what allows them to grow in, in interesting and in new ways yeah and it's it's validating i think of the fact that they have to struggle to get there because if you think about their contrast to the other family that pops up a couple of times in the movie, which, you know, is like the idyllic, you know, you know, perfect this family again. Getting gas and they're like jumping into the sun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, per, again, picture story. Some, some are assaulting out the window of the gas station to avoid, like to dodge the blast. <laughs> right. from the robots. And then, what do they say? Family first or something when they're leaving out the, out the door yeah. too? Yeah. But, you know, again, the, the contract, like ultimately, right, it's the Mitchells, right? It's the dysfunctional family that end up having to be the saviors of everyone. Um, and, you know, they have to work through their differences, which is, I think, much more uh, of the experience that families watching this movie will be familiar with. Um, There's some, like meta and, commentary. You know, it's like, will families be able to watch this movie together? Or they'll be yeah. much <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, again, I, I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, again, and it has a nice payoff in the end when they meet up, meet up with the other family again. And, you know, now the other family is kind of looking up to them because. And there's a great joke uh, about now I'm going to finally follow you on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. You yeah. haven't followed me before? Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, again, the, the, the thing about this movie is there are ideas in it that are inherently goofy and silly. And I think in a different kind of movie could have gone really awry, right? But when you have something like the karaoke of them singing, together when it's this narrative thread throughout the entire movie um and then at the end when it comes back and they are singing the song together as they're flying on these robots like that is such a great moment of catharsis where it feels like oh this is goofy but they they're goofy and like that makes sense and that's mm -hmm. believable and like it's a, it's something that means something to them and stuff that's in that's silly is not inherently bad or or you know i think there, there are versions again there are versions of this kind of story this kind of comedy where it veers too much to the wacky crazy so much stuff's going on this is wild but it always finds a way to ground itself every so often and not make it let 
be too madcap. There's the giant Furby scene, which I think is amazing with the giant, enormous terror. I mean, I'm glad something finally acknowledged how terrifying Furbies are. Um, but I, I think that, again, those moments, they complement the emotional arc and journey and mm -hmm. payoffs. They're not the main vehicle by which you're viewing the movie, which I think is the problem for a lot of movies that are of this sort of ilk is that they are too focused on the humor when it, where it's not, you don't care about the characters. So you're not, it's honestly funnier when someone you really care about tells a good joke or when they have something silly happen to them and, and then you're really invested in it. And I think that's the thing this movie gets really right is you care about the people that are doing the silly, goofy and crazy things. What do you guys think about the the big bad, so to speak here, right? The the tech corporation, the, you know, again, Olivia Coleman as the old version of this, you know, gadget who Siri. has been discarded in favor of uh, the new version, which is the, the robots that go rogue. You know, do you think there's any sort of deeper critique going on there? And if so, do you think they that it, it works or... Um, you know, is this an area of the movie that might fall more flat? I wouldn't call it deeper, just be anything because it's so surface. It's, it's so clearly it like it's like it literally <laughs> says it's almost like stealing people's da data and giving it to a hyper intelligent AI is like part yeah. of an unregulated tech monopoly was a bad thing. Like, and that is one thing. Away I, from that. Yeah. yeah, that and that is one thing that I will, if I have to knock the movie on something, is that I do feel like that stuff is a little bit more on the nose. Um, I mean, what, then, what would you want to do with yeah, it? Though? I would like, rather like, be on the nose. What you I don't want, I don't do want it, it to be like vaguely. Yeah. I think it's great that the movie is just like, no, this is what we're saying. This is in your face, direct to the point. We're like making a direct parody of tech companies. And this guy is the one who's saying it. I, I don't know. Like, obviously, I know that that's not going to work for everyone. But I appreciated the bluntness of the movie that's willing to present its theme super directly and not make not kind of be around the bush and be like, well, it's kind of bad. And then kind of go back on it. It's direct and straightforward. And it's consistent, I think, is the important thing. Yeah, and, and I will say, I'm not going to say that it's subtle at all, but I think there are some more, not again, not nuanced necessarily, but more interesting components layered on to something that's like super surface level, like this whole like, you know, big tech is bad. There's also this notion of like, not only is big tech bad, but like the people who are behind these like big tech innovations don't even care about the products that they're making, right? Like he's just as willing, like this Eric Andre's character is like just as willing to just throw away the old tech to push whatever new tech he can make for even more money. Right. Like not only is it, you know, again, the service level thing of like, you know, you know, should we be really trusting big tech companies in this way? Mm -hmm. But they're just like even more ruthless. And I think I think there's like an additional layer deeper there as well. That's not subtle, but um, is it just so surface level? I think. Yeah. And and going back to, again, the, the whole overarching theme about creativity. Right. This is something that he created himself, you know, the Eric Andre character that he is now discarding um and so i you know I, th I think it's it's trying to to validate appreciation for your own creation your own individuality your own expression um not necessarily trying to do the next biggest thing uh because it's what people want but rather making something that means something to you and it's also there's another thing we haven't even really touched on too much and that's kind of like the thing that is the solution to their literal problem is like the robots that they rescue, right, the defective ones, they see that a guy as stiff and serious as Rick is willing to change who he is, right, change his mm -hmm. viewpoints on things that he was previously not even willing to discuss. And that is what inspires them to sort of help the Mitchell family out. And I think that, you know, obviously that's a bit hacky and it's it's very simplistic, but I think that is a, like a very strong emotional core of the movie is this idea of people that who think you can't change 
can change if they just give it the time and you're willing to put in the effort and everyone's willing to try and be earnest about the entire thing. And I think the whole movie is just hyper earnest, right? Which is something that I've really come to appreciate in movies in general. And I think that strand um, also really works just because again, like you see how he is, how he's always been, but then it's recontextualized, right? Where you see the scenes where they have to leave the cabin and he's so sad and that was his art, right? And it's his heartbreak. And that's the reason that he treats Katie this way is because he doesn't want her to feel that same pain and then, you know, eventually he's willing to give into that and, and let her be her own person. Obviously, her movie, which is very on the nose, right, where it's the sheriff, the dog is quitting its job, the dog cop is quitting its job. And this is very direct, obvious thing. It's it's hinting at his character. But I think that, again, that stuff all ties well together to what the movie is saying and doing at sort of every single point along the way. It's, it doesn't stray from that idea and theme. That's very, it's, it's a through line that I think runs throughout the entire thing. Just put some respect on that dog's name. It's Munchie. <laughs> Yeah, you, you you won't be surprised to know that no, the dog <laughs> that stuff did not that didn't really register at all for Scott. Movie, yeah. <laughs> he, he didn't even know there was a dog in the movie. He just, I'm pretty sure it's a blind spot for him when he watches things. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, again, going back to to kind of what Paul was saying, the way that they ultimately kind of defeat the robots, right, is they they use their programming and the fact that they're uh, they are unable to change, right? They are unable to sort of like adapt to their own perception of again of of munchie and they're they're just like caught in this perpetual loop of like dog pig loaf of bread like we can't we don't understand what we're <laughs> Have you guys at. seen silicon valley um, sorry it just reminded me of, of, a, of a hilarious bit from silicon valley where um one of the one of the like supporting characters creates this program that's that's supposed to be this like next unicorn app that is just supposed to differentiate whether something is a hot dog or not which just reminds me of, <laughs> it just reminds me of that um it felt like a bit, a bit ripped off from that, but it, it was funny. That's fair. Yeah, dog, dog, pig, loaf of bread is definitely going to be one of those things that uh, people remember about this movie, and I think probably quote um, when they when they think about this movie because it is it's pretty. There's funny. a lot of th that's the thing too is this movie is is dense with humor, but not in a way that's ever disorienting. Like there are a lot of jokes, but it's not like they they go joke, 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 joke. It's like they set this joke up. There you go. Pay it off and let the. There's a lot happen. of setups and payoffs, like yeah. both humor-wise and emotional-wise. Like we, you know, we haven't even mentioned like the whole moose carving thing that happens. Yes, um, exactly. Obviously, the big payoff of that at the end when she actually gets to school. Uh, yeah, that that send-off scene is great too. Like that's a great like, it, you know, it feels like almost an after-credit scene in a way, but it is yeah. like a great like, moment where it's this culmination of all of their journeys, and it's them realizing, oh, like this is how much we've grown and how much we've changed, but we're still together as a family. Um, and we can still do stuff together when we when we want to. Yeah. The yeah. only last thing I'll say, because uh, I don't want to let it get too far away from us before I call us back to it, is um, the the Beck Bennett character, which I think are, are the two. He plays the two damaged robots, right? I think I think he does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would know. Right, I think yeah. he. I think it's is it no? Because Fred Armisen is one of them. Uh, okay. Then, he, then Beck Bennett, yeah, I think, played. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You know, it is Fred. Ar no, I think Fred Armisen. Okay, well now I've now I've confused myself. Um I think Beck Bennett plays one of them, but maybe he doesn't. Um yeah, anyway, he does. he does. It's one of them's him, one of them's Fred Armisen. Yeah. Okay, okay, gotcha. For some reason I just kind of thought Beck Bennett played both of them, but whatever. Um <laughs> there you go. The voices aren't standing out in the cast for me. Uh, <laughs> but I, I will say I think that was the one spot where I would say that I would not like one of the major spots in the movie that I would not because I didn't super love, love that. I, I I think it's an important part mm -hmm. of the film to drive the narrative forward, but um it that was something that just felt like it was missing a little bit, but Maybe that's also part of the story is that the robots, they're missing something. Yeah, I mean, it, it did feel like that was like a sort of their device to like advance 
the the story when it was necessary to right like they can do the things that when they reach an impasse oh the robots can help fix this in a way that you know the yeah. humans necessarily couldn't yeah all right well guys with that i think we can move into our wrap-up for the movie um let's go around the horn and we'll start with paul uh what was your favorite scene or moment from the mitchells versus the machines <sighs> Well, as I sort of mentioned, like there were, I think two or three specific moments where I was like, not like just crying, but like legit sobbing in a way that I was again, like very, very surprised by. Um, and I think it really is, it's 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 hard to choose between the different moments where um, really Rick and Katie sort of come together and, and they help realize, you know, that they're not that different ultimately. And like, they do love each other and that they've strayed away from their relationship, but that it, it lets it, um, if you know, they just allow themselves to, they can easily get back to sort of that tenor that they had before. And I think it's hard for me to choose between any of either of the two sort of big moments where they're talking to each other. Um, just cause I think neither one is super necessarily different, but I just love that the way that they um, communicate their feelings for each other. And I think that, I don't know, like, I know that's not very specific in terms of a moment moment, but I think for, for me, like the, those, two scenes really stood out a lot and they're the things that will stick with me i think in this movie and honestly th that's why this is probably my favorite movie i've seen this year so far which sounds kind of wild um but of like the 50 something movies this is the one that i think emotionally disconnected the most um and also again we didn't really talk a ton about the animation but it is very fun and vibrant and creative mm -hmm. and it's not sort of like your standard run-of-the-mill sort of 3D CG animation. I think it's it is really cool and, and well and well made. But yeah, it's, it's I not think pushing yeah. like photorealism and like the the mm -hmm. like cutting edge of it's, fidelity. It's rough around the wedge. Wow. the wedges. <laughs> it's rough around the edges in the same way that me trying to say rough around the edges were, but also that uh, that Katie's films are right. So again, like tying it back into what I was saying at the beginning, I think. It, it fits really well. Like it, it fits as well in this movie as like the comic booky stuff did in Spider-Verse, I think. Like they, they do a really good job of meshing the animation style with the, the plot, the themes. It's not just, hey, we're doing this because it looks cool and it's kind of interesting and it's not what you usually see in animated movies. There's, there's a real purpose behind it. And just so I stick with the format of the show, I'll pick a specific moment. I'll, for me, it's probably when um it's when they're leaving the house when katie is a baby right and um their mother is like oh like i i know this is very hard for you and he looks at katie as a, as a baby and he says no this is easy um and it's him sort of like again taking on the fatherly role and letting that become his main focus instead of this cabin that he spent so much time and energy and, and love on and what does this movie say about la la land <laughs> okay Scott, on that your favorite uh <laughs> gotta follow your dreams guys don't don't worry about family um, I think for me, I, I can't not go with, sorry, with, with the end. Cause I really do, even though I don't think I connected on an emotional level at the same, in the same way that, you know, definitely Paul, maybe you as well, Scott for this, I, I did, I was still really touched by the sort of the, the, I don't know if you want to call it a, a post credits like scene. I think that's the way you described it earlier, Paul, but this notion, you know, she's at college, she's like FaceTiming her parents. And then, you know, you have this whole, um, the way, the way those scenes finally play out and it's, it's really heartwarming. Like it really is. Um, and, and I think a lot of that ties back to the setups and payoffs that you guys were talking about, right? Like this whole movie is built around that. And I think that the ending of this film is, is the ultimate payoff at the end of the day for everything before it. Um, yeah. I mean, you guys have talked about a lot of the big moments in the movie. So I want to highlight one of the small moments, because of course I have to mention this moment where we see, um, who is on the Mount Rushmore of filmmakers for Katie, um, very briefly i forget whether it's in one of her films or just like a little um 
you know, moment in this movie with the animation. But, you know, we have, I believe, Greta Gerwig, uh, Celine Sciamma, Lynn Ramsey. And then I can't remember who the fourth one was. I think it was a male filmmaker. Actually, yeah, it might have been but, Mike Rianda. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think it was Mike Rianda. <laughs> it's going to be incredible. Um, <laughs> Only your shot. Michael like Bay. Was Michael Bay. No, oh, yeah. um, no I, I don't remember who it was. But, of course, you know, any time you give me a main character who stands Greta Gerwig, like, that's just going to make me appreciate um, and connect with that character so much. This, this just in it so cracked the top deeply. 10 list for Scott already. <laughs> so, much, so much more deeply, yeah. Um, it, it very well may. I mean, it, it's... It's a great movie. It's my it's my number two so far uh, of the year. But uh, um, it's, it's Hal Ashby. I just I just uh, double check. That's it. right. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, so there you go. Uh, let's put a score on this movie. Uh, Paul, out of ten, what do you give? And you can use decimals. Uh, yeah, out of ten, um, what would you give? Missiles uh, versus machines. I think again. I think to to give it a. I know that I, I have sort of an inclination to give it a slightly lower score because it's like, oh, this is not this, you know, masterpiece artfully. But I think for me, it did connect emotionally in a way that I think I have to respect and respond to. And I think for me, it probably is, um, I would call it a 9.5, I would say. Like, it is very, very close to being a 10 out of 10 movie for me. There's a yeah. couple of stuff that, I, a couple of jokes that didn't quite land exactly. Um, and it is, like, you know, the, the plot is a bit sort of wonky in parts, but I think... Um, yeah, when it hits, when it strikes that chord emotion, I think it's it's impossible to really deny that it is like a very important movie for me, and I think it is going to stay in my you know top top movies of the year for the entire year. And I I think it, you'd be hard pressed to find an animated movie this year that's that's better than this. We'll see if Miyazaki puts out his movie or not, but uh, we'll see know, what Luca can do and can help. Pixar. Yeah, uh, yeah, Scott, your score for Mitchell's versus the Machines. Yeah, I mean, just to quickly follow up on, on what Paul was saying there, I think one of the th and you mentioned, um, or I guess you didn't mention this, and I think that's one of the things that we haven't talked about at all, really, is like we haven't really talked about the plotting of this film. I think it speaks to a lot of what this film is able to accomplish, really, without much talking about anything beyond just the setup for, you know, we talked about what's driven them onto this road trip. But like pretty much everything after that, like we haven't really talked at all about the story this movie's gone on. And we've still talked for 40, 45 minutes um, about how, it emotionally resonates with us in the different parts that really speak to us. And I think that that is, is a lot more conversation about like deeper things than we often get on this podcast, which I think speaks to sort of the depth that this movie can go to. I'm only giving it a 7.5, but I totally hear where you guys are coming, uh, where you're coming from Paul with uh, with a higher score. Yeah, I give it an 8.8. .8. I really liked this movie. Um, it, like I said, it's my number two of the year behind Judas only. Um, I think, uh, I'm not counting the father towards 2021. Because it, it's technically like if you go look at release dates, it's technically 2020. Whereas well, only because it has a only because it has a festival debut last year. That's the yeah. I mean, I, I I may have to reevaluate, but um, that's that's where I'm sitting right now. I think I'm going by either IMDb or Letterbox release dates. I forget which one I'm going. By. I think they're both 2021. But you know, be be with God. Go ahead. <laughs> Semantics, but anyway, it's this movie's great. Everyone should watch it. This is a movie for you to. This is a movie for the whole family and for you to watch with your whole family. I is hope it, he uh, makes because, more movies. I hope Mike, Michael Rianda like makes yeah, more absolutely. movies because he has an energy and a voice and I think a specific thing to say that I would wa I want to see more. Whether it's animation or live action, who knows what he wants to do next? But I, I would be you know pretty heavily anticipating whatever next thing he comes out with. Yeah, we'll see if he absolutely. can translate that voice to other stuff. Hopefully, he can. Because yeah, it is very specific yeah. to him. Yeah. Some, All right, uh, uh, 
That concludes uh, our discussion of the Mitchells versus the Machines. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to discuss a couple of news stories, including uh, the big news we got today. The Golden Globes are not going to be airing on literally, NBC. Literally canceled. And we'll have some thoughts on that after the break. So stay tuned. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, we have a couple of news stories, as usual, to hit before the end of the show. Uh, and Scott, I'm going to throw it over to you first to talk about uh, some casting news for the sequel to uh, one of both of ours, but especially your uh, favorite movies of 2019. Yeah, I mean, probably one of my favorite Thanksgiving movies. I, I think this past year I decided that it was like for at least for the foreseeable future, the movie that I will watch on Thanksgiving every single year. Uh, but yeah, Knives Out. I don't think we got to talk about it on the podcast when it was announced that Netflix is going to be funding two sequels to Knives Out involving Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig. They're paying like $400, $500 million mm-hmm. for that package um, to and buying it off Lionsgate, essentially, um, which was a big, a big move. And, you know, I think one that worth that's worthwhile, but that's a lot of money um, for, for Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig. Um, but yeah, we got some news just today as of recording that Dave Bautista has been cast in, you know, we don't know how significant a role, but I assume since he's one of the first people being announced in the cast that it's going to be a fairly significant role for the sequel and, you know, cue a bunch of memes about how little glasses from Blade Runner 2049 coming back. Um, but yeah, I think this is interesting. It's definitely a nice pairing uh, to his role as, as Drax, because I can only assume that he's not going to be playing like, you know, a hulking monster in a Ryan Johnson in a Ryan Johnson Knives Out sequel. But who knows? Uh, there's all different kinds of monsters, as we saw in the original Knives Out movie. But this is something that I'm really excited about. I mean, it it probably like doesn't really matter who gets cast in this for me, as long as it's not like, I don't know, Ansel Elgort or something. I'm probably going to be like pretty excited uh, about it overall. So um, more casting news means that this thing's starting soon, which means that we're going to get this released eventually, which is uh, all, all green light in my book. Yeah, I guess the question here is kind of, and I would expect that the answer is yes, but, you know, is this going to be another ensemble style, you yeah. know, room mystery and in, w- in which case you know dave bautista and whoever the next nine names we hear in this movie will probably have sort of the same role right in the same way that um you know jamie lee curtis don johnson tony collette all of those folks you know had um you know pretty similar amounts of screen time i mean you know daniel craig and Ade armas those were clearly the um the leads of the movie but um other than that it was you know again your agatha christie style like cast of strange characters and uh yeah Yeah. Dave Bautista has shown that he can play a strange character right and in the MCU in Blade Runner um you know in the the classic My Spy of course um oh I I did watch that movie (laughs) and Stuber don't forget Stuber yeah um no yeah he's he's another guy who has you know definitely very successfully made the jump from um you know the world of sports um and Mm -hmm in particular, you know, mixed martial arts to being an actor. Um, and yeah, he, this is a, another, uh, you know, notch in his belt. Um, Paul, yeah. your thoughts on this? Uh, I, I don't, I don't know if that I'm that fascinated by it, honestly. I think he's a pretty good actor. I think he's quite good mm-hmm. in Blade Runner 2049. I don't think that I've been super impressed by him in really anything else, honestly. Um, I think he's perfectly 
you know, he's pretty solid as Drax in the MCU. I don't think he's anything super special. Um, and his other movies, I think Stuber is like a terrible, terrible movie, honestly. That's like a huge waste of Kumail as a talent. So it's like... Not I the only he, movie that Kumail wasted mm, his talent on. Man, you, you guys, you, you're thinking about the love for it. It's like so aggressive and weird. Um, but I, I just think that, you know, I think he'll be a great ensemble piece. I just don't see him playing that big of a role, honestly, in this movie. Um, if he does, that'll be interesting. I think in general, I'm kind of bummed by the whole... Uh, Knives Out thing being acquired by Netflix because I think that's like one of the few movies that could still perform in a theater no matter what the situation is really just because I think Brian Johnson that kind of movie and the fact that he can get movie stars right to be in it. I mean the first one was a monster hit. Like, exactly. Uh, so that in that sense I'm bummed about the whole, the whole deal going down but I mean I think David Batista will probably be perfectly you know reasonable. I think he's a you know a super, he's a solid actor. I just don't think he's been anything like that. It's mind-blowing and I think in these movies you don't really get that much of a chance to show too much as much as like in, in that movie's still great. And on paper, it's like, Oh, these, all these amazing actors, but it's like, do all of them have too much to do? Like, no. And it will elevate the movie, but I, I don't know that if like one person is going to change this movie drastically. Really. Well, no. I, and, and I think that, but for me that I, I'm okay with that. And I think that works well because at least with the first one, like we have no idea what's going to happen. Second, I can only assume that it's going to be something similar to what Scott was describing. It's going to mm -hmm. be, I don't think it's going to have the exact same drawing room flavor. I think it's going to, there's going to be some spin on it. that's going to make it a little bit like Ryan Johnson's just not the kind of person to me. That's going to, he's going to do the exact same thing again. It doesn't really feel like his vibe, um, but it's going to be of that ilk. And I, and I do think it's still going to be an ensemble piece, but for me, like, I don't know, like I don't go to a Ryan Johnson movie because Bruce Willis is like playing the supporting character, right? Like I go to it cause it's a Ryan Johnson movie at this point. Like that's why I want to go see it. Like Ryan Johnson mm -hmm. is the main character for the movie of the movie for me and like, yeah, Daniel Craig and Benoit Blanc, like I'm that it's like absolutely something that will be a huge advertising component because he does play this sort of outlandish character. But I think as much as Daniel Craig is playing this sort of like crazy character, like the only person who's doing anything remotely nuanced in the first movie is Ana de Armas's character. And like everyone else is just playing like, you know, a, a clown essentially of, of different, of different varieties, but it works really well. And I think that Dave Bautista, it like I have faith at least maybe I can't, you know, say with like scientific evidence that he's going to be able to pull it off. Like, I think that you can do something with his persona and his personality, you know, tweak that a little bit and put that into a movie and create something that works really well, like something like Chris Evans did or Jamie Lee Curtis did, or, or you know, insert any, pretty much anyone in that entire family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we will, I'm sure we will be reporting back before too long on the next people. Um, I also do think that there will be still a hundred people cast in the next yeah. few months. <laughs> yeah. I, I also still think that movie, I mean, look, I know that I'm like a little bit privileged because I still get like Netflix releases living in New York and even before when I lived in Boston. But I do think Ryan Johnson like probably has some sort of deal where it has to get like Scorsese did, et cetera. That has to get released in some theaters. Now, whether you it's have access to those theaters, the same, though, it's totally not the same. Yeah. It's absolutely not the same. You're absolutely yeah. right. But I don't, it's not like this is, you know, the Mitchells versus the Machines never had a chance to see a theater. But I think that Knives Out 2 has a chance. Uh, well, something we won't be seeing, Scott, in any capacity is... Maybe, for now. Awards. For now, yeah. Uh, I think that is an important caveat. Yeah. Uh, the Golden Globe Awards in 2022, which have already been canceled, um, or at least, have they been fully canceled, or is it just they're not going to appear on NBC? Uh, they're refusing, NBC has, has yeah. refused to air them. So, yeah, you, you question whether they will go forward with them, even though I don't think it has been officially canceled. But you know, Sh Shutter will pick them up and air them because it's going to be a horror show. <laughs> this comes in the wake. This comes in the wake of uh, of many years of, you know, complaints 
um, about particularly about representation within the Hollywood Foreign Press Association that, you know, the members or the, you know, acting faithful, um, you know, the creative faithful feel uh, that those concerns have continued to go unaddressed. You know, there was an incident recently with the president of the HFPA or somebody making some racially insensitive. For, for, former president, I think, still a yeah. member, but former president. Um, and, you know, again, no black members was was a huge talking point. This That was this year, right, that that um, came out or, or maybe last year. Yeah. Um, you know, and and uh, yeah, that's been a huge talking point for for several years now. And, you know, things have finally come to a head just all of a sudden, really, like, you know, I, I think we maybe saw that there was writing on the wall moving forward if, if these problems weren't addressed. But this is kind of shocking and a little bit. Um, just out of left field to sudden for this suddenly to happen in the middle of May, at least you know, that's how I feel. Um, but, you know, many actors um, voicing their discontent um, and <clears throat> their desire to not participate in the ceremony going forward. Tom Cruise uh, doing the dramatic thing of, um, you know, returning his three golden gloves, I believe it was. Um, and, you know, say, saying that I guess they're they're not worth anything to him anymore. I wish that he could return those three golden gloves and get an Oscar in return. But I was gonna say it, those are the most prestigious awards he has. He has no BAFTA, no SAG, no Oscars. Like those are his awards. So don't give me. Don't give me. Also, like the Globes deal, are more prestigious than all of those because they air on national television. So. They do have the fewest amount of voters, so they're the most selective. One could yeah. say. Elite. I know. <laughs> you're 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 absolutely right. It, it is something, and I think uh, people are you know kind of being a little sniffy and rolling their eyes about it a little bit. Um, but also, I think this is the point in Tom Cruise's career where he's like probably okay with giving up his Golden Globes because I think he's accepted he's, and just like does not care about winning an award anymore because he's still well, just doing Mission. If he did, he wouldn't be doing Mission Impossible 7. What is that guy not okay with, right? Like we read something new every single day about him doing some stuff that he could have died if he had done something like you know, a fractionally different. So yeah, I, I mean, earlier today, there's like the Empire Magazine article about mm-hmm. him. To eat, like for the most recent one, he's just driving off a cliff. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, this this ha- you know the, I I will be interested to see if this causes any sort of fallout throughout other awards ceremonies, right? Because the HFPA may be the most prominent uh, body to have these sort of concerns raised, but certainly not the only one. The Academy, um, you know, uh, has gotten a lot of flack for similar issues over the years. I will say the Academy does seem to have taken a few more proactive steps to addressing those uh, issues, uh, both in the makeup of the bu- members of the Academy and in the films that they have chosen to award in recent years and, and performances. Wait, wait till next year. Don't worry. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, but, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I will be interested to see how this, you know, has fallout for the greater awards se- season award show um, world. Uh, because this is not something that's going to go away because the Golden Globes decided to, to pack it in for a year. Yeah, and I think one thing that I don't mind going out on a limb and saying is just that, like, one of the things, Jenny, you were surprised is happening so early in the year. That's exactly the reason why I'm not surprised it's happening because it's really safe for NBC right now to say, hey, you know what? We're not going to air you until you fix this because yeah. they have, what, seven, eight months to fix it? And the barrier or like the threshold at which they have to clear to get like NBC to like actually air them. Like I'll be interested to see, I'll I'll be interested to see what that threshold is because at the end of the day, yeah, it was a weird year for award shows top to bottom. Everyone was down like basically 60% plus in terms of 
audience viewing on TV. But like the Golden Globes is traditionally one of the most viewed programs on NBC um, outside of like obviously Sunday Night Football. But it, it's a it's a major broadcast for them. And so I don't think that people are too discouraged yet with like the viewing statistics just because it was such a weird year. Um, I think that NBC is doing this right now because they're hoping that this is just one of the many things to add to the fire underneath the HFPA to actually do something meaningful so they can bring them back. And, you know, honestly, all of this narrative over the course of an entire year is probably just going to drive viewer statistics at the end of the day uh, when, when, you know, award season rolls around in, in January, if they have done enough to like be uncanceled or whatever. Um, do I think they're going to be able to do enough by any like reasonable threshold by January? Like probably not to actually create institutional change. Does that mean that they're not going to end up being back on the air in January? I'm not sure. If not, I'm sure there are some Chicago Fire reruns that NBC can uh, run in that time slot. But that'd be a question that Scott could probably actually answer better than anyone. But um, that's okay. No, no one's going to care about the Golden Globes in next January because it's going to be the Olympics right after that. That is true. Um, Paul, your uh, your thoughts on this whole controversy? I think it. I think after the next cycle, that will be the real bellwether, right? If this they don't air this and then it just never airs again, which I think is decently likely. Right. Um, it wouldn't yeah, even be a bad thing. There's like so overweighted in the, in the award scheme. It's, it's, it's just, it's just strange, I think. And I think the globes are something that I just, I have a hard time really caring about, but the weird thing is we put value in this random award show. I don't know why that yeah. became like the second big movie award show. Really? You know what I mean? Like it kind of it a distribution like deal makes any sense. Yeah, I guess that's true. Cause um, it aired on NBC on you know the first week of January, every single year for like 30 years. But it's like, it's, it's funny. Cause every year, you know, I, I will just say, I'm glad that I won't have to see a bunch of tweets about how nobody cares about the globes and then see those same people on the night of the globes be outraged. Losing stuff their minds. The globes are doing. Yeah. It's yeah. like, in that sense, I guess there will be a little bit of, of calmness in, in my mind, but um, I don't know. I, I don't know that this necessarily signals any sort of big sea change in the industry. I just think it's like, well, people are really, you know, shitting on the globes now. So we're going to go ahead and take them off the air. Uh, you know, of course, now this is, you know, the time to do this would have been a while ago, right? Where things were actually, you know, where it seemed like the globes were a bigger part of negative sort of culture and discourse. But I think at this point, I don't know if it's that different or if that things are gotten worse or, you know, very different. I think that the globes are kind of what they've been for a long time. So I don't yeah. know that this is a big step in any sort of way. Yeah, I think the only the only thing that might have contributed to it, just from a cultural awareness perspective, is like all like the exposés, like the LA Times did about like all of the kickbacks and nepotism involved with the organization. Not that that hasn't yeah. existed forever, and people like deep down in their hearts, and definitely everyone involved already knew about it. But um, like I, I feel like so many cultural movements, and I'll put that in air quotes because I don't know if this one necessarily counts with the HFPA specifically. Um, but like uh, you know, just social media and and increased awareness i think just drives a lot of things yeah i mean for god's sake music got nominated this year and you, emily in paris you That's you know wild. that there's some stuff going on behind the scenes when scott you haven't watched it don't knock until you try it uh, no but i did try to watch 15 minutes of emily in paris and i think my brain disintegrated but uh um, maybe you're if you're an influencer you'd get it you know no yeah you know, That's no. emily in paris is an art film that's the thing about emily in paris oh jesus on that note, um, I think that'll do it for this episode. <laughs> um, Paul, let's start with you. Uh, where can everyone find you on uh, social media? 
Uh, I guess Letterbox is really the big thing, right? This is a movie podcast. That's where most of my movie thoughts go. Just look up my name, Paulo Yama on Letterbox. You can find me pretty easy. See what I'm watching, what I think of it, et cetera, et cetera. Mitchell's in the machine, Versal Machines, and many other you know movies. Um, no, you don't watch well. that many but, movies, though. It, uh, no, 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 no. You have to go. No, for certainly it, not. Not not as many as some people I know. You'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I did just surprised. want to give a quick 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 little streaming shout out. Uh, little Fish, which is a movie that premiered earlier this year, which is yeah, a great movie, is on. Is on Hulu now, so if you have Hulu, and you know it's a terrific, terrific uh, romantic drama. I think um, with two of our, you know, that that generation's most exciting actors in different ways. I guess Jack O'Connell and Olivia Cook, two very talented people, and it's a great movie. But other than that, yeah, Letterbox, and I, I do have a Twitter, but I don't know. follow me if you'd like. You don't have to, <laughs> but you have to follow him on Letterbox. Yes, Twitter doesn't must. matter though. Compulsory, compulsory. Scott, where can our listeners find you? At Shelton two zero one three. I'd say you could follow me on Twitter, but I'll, I mean, I tweet every once every few months so you might as well just follow me at letterbox at least there i you know i'll at least post something every week fair enough uh and i am at scarvy dent on twitter and letterboxd uh i'm two movies away from hitting 1000 on letterboxd wait have you decided what it's going to be yet i think i'm going to watch when harry met sally for my 1000 uh that's going to be the one because another another great one to watch with your family long overdue uh long overdue one for me to watch but I saw that in theaters on it's like I think at the end of 2019, it's like 30th anniversary. There's like special screenings. Nice. It was really cool. I don't know if it was 30th. Uh, that doesn't sound right. 25th? Yeah, 89. 89. Oh, okay. So it was 30. Cool. But yeah, follow me over there if you want to uh to see my thoughts on that, maybe in a few days. Um uh, and of course, please uh check out our podcast uh on social media. Uh, and our Patreon page, patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Uh, even if you can't support us over there, though, please like, rate, review, subscribe, do all the things that you do uh, on your preferred podcast app. Uh, and please join us for our next episode uh, of Some Like It, Scott, my birthday episode next week, on which we'll be, we will be discussing Taylor Sheridan's new film, Those Who Wish Me Dead. Sorry, um, if, you, if you're confused about hearing Taylor Sheridan's name again, don't worry. It's, it's not yeah. a mistake. I, I, I tend to believe Taylor Sheridan was actually involved with the making of this movie, whereas with without remorse, I'm I am somewhat skeptical about whether he actually was in the end. But he probably uh, wrote the story like bullet points, and then had whoever was the co-writer write actually write it. Join us next week. Thanks to Paul uh, for for being a guest. We appreciate having you, um, and we'll look forward to to having you back and to having our listeners back uh, next week for that episode. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton. Hello, Yama. I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.